0: Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of L'Aison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, L'Aison Lumineur listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Kristen Racanello, the editor and producer of this podcast. I wanted to give an important note here at the top. We've moved to a bi-weekly production schedule rather than having weekly episodes. We decided to do so to elongate the time that I have to research these episodes so that I can bring you a specially formulated topic every time you listen. So. Thank you for your patience and understanding, and again, please do write in with your comments, questions, and responses to the podcast via either our social media or email. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified as soon as we publish each episode. Although it's only been two weeks, it feels as though our newly extended time apart has distended much longer and yet also much shorter than the regularity of measured empirical time might suggest. Such measured time ticks off at regular intervals, contrasting sharply with our perception of time as a thing that responds to our feelings and desires, often slowing down when we, for example, stand online at the grocery store or in the dentist's office, or speeding up when we're engrossed in a fast-paced film, or while reading and looking through our favorite manuscripts. This topic, is what we are going to discuss today, this fascinating and very strange thing, time. Time is critical to our understanding of history, but we are also distant from history, however we decide to define it. History is a social memory, an objective list of past events, or a subjective, personal connection with perceived people, places, or events in the past, depending on which scholar you ask, of course. History and time are always in relation to one another, but history is not time. History is retrospective, meaning we're always looking back to history from the present moment. This gap in time, between historical events and the present, is an impenetrable space, but the entire discipline of history attempts to bring history into present memory and understanding. I think of this, this gap, as the gap of longing. That is, longing for connection to a past, a heritage, a history. This longing is felt acutely and expressed by enthusiasts who collect medieval art or texts, who might create exact replicas of period costumes or jewelry, or who simply throw on a medieval-style tasseled robe to attend the opening day of neo-medieval films like The Green Knight or The Last Duel. Professionals might also collect medieval art, but the attitude among academics is often one of distaste for reenactment and the enthusiastic, often amateur, search for an immediate connection with the past in the present. I will note very briefly here that professional historians' discomfort with enthusiastically and lovingly embracing the gap of longing, as I've called it, between their present selves and the past they study generally stems from a socially enforced detachment that permeates the discipline. The images that come to mind when I hear the words professional, academic, or expert are very serious, reserved ones. I certainly do not connect the words passion, longing, or desire with professionalism. However, I recently read Carolyn Dinshaw's book, How Soon is Now? Medieval Texts, Amateur Readers, and the Queerness of Time. Dinshaw is an academic who embraces the amateur lovingly and writes that she, quote, suspects that amateurs have something to teach experts—namely, that the present moment is more temporally heterogeneous than academically disciplined, historically-minded scholars tend to let on, and that some kind of desire for the past motivates all of our work, regardless of how sharp-edged our researches eventually become. Love and knowledge are inextricable." Many of the ideas we discuss today will draw from her analysis and observations of the relationship between medieval perceptions of time and the idea of historical time, created and understood by both historians and amateurs. I am particularly keen on discussing time, love, amateur desire, and historians' perceptions of time with you today because our most recent exhibition and catalogue at Les Numenieurs zeroes in on this topic through a specially curated selection of revival jewelry. The exhibition is titled The Ideal Past, Revival Jewels, and it brings together a group of sixteen jewels by the most significant revival jewelries of the nineteenth century. Castellani, Visa, Feliz, Giuliano, and Froman Maris. What differentiates the art of this revivalist era is that there is no style which can properly be called its own. Every style looks back lovingly across that gap of longing. The show is designed to focus on each jewel's presentation of a unique ideal past, combined with an innovative spirit that is itself characteristic of these distinguished jewelers. An ideal is romantic, neoplatonic, desirable, and, in its truest form, always out of reach. These jewels represent the combination of the artist's and patron's imagined historical and aesthetic ideals made manifest as intimate, bold, wearable, precious objects. The ideal visible in these jewels reminds me of Miuccia Eliade's idea of the eternal return as present in 19th century revivalism as it is in our contemporary moment of longing returns to an idyllic past. The eternal return is a desire to become contemporary with or return to a mythical or even a legendary age. I'll return to this idea of the return shortly as we discuss St. Augustine and Aristotle. But for now, let's turn to a few of the artworks in this incredible exhibition on the ideal past. This exhibition is broken into three different desirable periods of return ancient, Gothic, and Renaissance Revival. Classical Greco Roman style jewels were inspired by a growing interest in archaeology, as we see in Castellani and Giuliano's jewelry. The return to Gothic sources, especially evident in jewelry by Visa, and froment meris was linked to an interest in establishing national identities through an artificial lineage. Feliz and Giuliano claim the renewal of artistic individuality through their perfection of Renaissance enameling techniques combined with Renaissance themes. Of course, none of these are perfect reproductions of historical jewelry. Instead, we see elements of ancient and medieval jewelry beautifully, incorporated within modern settings and mixed with other modern techniques and iconography. But why did the 19th century inspire such a turn to the past? What, exactly, were artists and patrons looking for in this past time? Well, according to our jewelry expert, Beatrice Chador Sampson, Europe in the 19th century experienced dramatic political upheavals and at the time was an exciting period of international trade exhibitions and new art movements. Travel was no longer the privilege of the aristocracy. Revivals in art and architecture can be attributed to a newfound interest in antiquarianism, which the architect Reginald Blomfield called, (laughs) collector's mania. Other revival styles were attached directly to political turmoil and the crisis of identity that subsequently followed, heavily linking revivalism to the search for national identities. This period corresponds to the Romantic movement in literature and art, so we might even think of work by Victor Hugo, like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, that was published in 1831. The arts and crafts movement is also tied to revivalist designers and looked romantically to the past to escape the modernity of their rapidly industrializing century. Of course, the revivalist movement was not limited to jewelry and small-scale sculpture. Revivalist art and architecture consciously echoed the style of a previous era. The best known of these revivalist styles are the neoclassical which is the revival of Greco-Roman architecture and art, often known in America as the Federalist style of architecture, and, secondly, the Gothic revival. However, there have been many other revivals, including of Ancient Egyptian, Assyrian, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, and more. Individual revivalist goldsmiths were known by name through many exhibitions, press articles, and publications as had never been seen before. A new era in jewelry had begun. The term art jewelry was official, even though jewelry fashions continued to be shaped by the royal courts and high society. Pearls were worn in unimaginable quantities, and with the discovery of diamonds in South Africa from 1867, The market was flooded with gemstones. London and Paris were established centers for luxury goods in the 1850s, followed later in the century by New York. Queen Victoria reigned over the British Empire from 1837 to 1901, and her husband, Prince Albert, was the mastermind behind the Great Exhibition of 1851 in the Crystal Palace in London, which was the very first of its kind. More than six million visitors flocked there to see the products of their nation and from around the world. The displays of jewelry were identified by their national identity and distinctive styles, hence my earlier comment about the inherently nationalistic quality of the movement. This was a time when a search for roots, individualism, and distinction were in the forefront of European public thought. The revival jewel industry was dominated by Britain. However, French jewelers specializing in Gothic and Renaissance Revival styles were adored by wealthy Victorians and received the highest accolades. The jewelers Rudolphi, Gayton, and Froment-Mérys were awarded medals for their gold and silversmithing. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert acquired a number of pieces from Froment-Mérys and became his patron. The British architect and designer William Burgs remarked on the superiority of French jewelers and their displays in the 1862 exhibition in London. It was the first time the Roman jeweler Castellani exhibited in London. He introduced the Italian taste for archaeological style or antiquarian jewelry to the British audience, which was novel at the time and soon caught the attention of his contemporaries not only in England but in France as well. Influential in France was the architect and author Eugène Villette-le-Duc, who undertook a program of restoring medieval cathedrals and buildings that had been damaged during the French Revolution. The Gothic style developed into an emblem of national pride at that time. Among others, the jewelry houses of Romain-Mérisse and Visse integrated Gothic architecture and depictions of legendary French heroes into their designs. Whilst in England, the architect and leading figure of the Gothic Revival movement, A.W.N. Pugin, was inspired by medieval craftsmanship and details found in medieval ecclesiastic metalwork. We don't have time in this podcast, unfortunately, to really discuss Orientalism at length, but it is important to note that in this period of solidifying aesthetic cultures associated with lineage, nationhood, ethnicity, and race in Europe, a flip side, often presented as an ahistorical movement, unfolded. This aesthetic and literary movement is normally termed Orientalism because it was a response to the arts and cultures of Aphrasia, that is, Asian, Middle Eastern, and North African countries. Although you may come across courses in colleges or textbooks using the labels Eastern and Western in art and history, these are outdated terms deriving from the concept of an Orient and an Occident. The word Orient derives from the Latin word Oriens, meaning east, while Occident derives from the Latin word for west. Both words really originally refer to the sun, with Oriens referring to the rising, an asadere, referring to the setting sun. It was the arts of Japan that would prove to be the most influential for European goldsmiths in the second half of the century. The country opened its borders in 1854 after having been sealed off from the outside world since 1624. Displays of Japanese artifacts at the 1862 International Exhibition in London created immense interest. The jeweler Lucien Féliz visited the displays on his return to Paris and began creating jewelry with cloisonné enamel in the Japanese style. So, now that we have reviewed a bit of the history behind this movement, I want to highlight one piece from each of the three Revivalist sections, that is the Ancient, the Gothic, and the Renaissance, but you can view the full list of works on our website. I want to give a sense of the highly individual mechanics of desire and time at play in each of these dazzling pieces. Let's start with desire for ancient times and work our way up through the medieval to the modern era and the present. A fascination with the arts of ancient Greece and Rome recurred throughout the centuries. However, in the 19th century, a vogue for ancient revival jewelry was triggered by the pre-sale publication in 1858 of the famous collection of classical antiquities belonging to the Italian art collector Marquise Giampietro Campana. Leading European museums competed to acquire parts of the collection, comprising jewelry and works of art from the Greek, Etruscan, and Roman eras. In 1861, Napoleon III secured the collection for the French nation, an act seen as a political move. The jewelry had been placed before the sale in the care of the jeweler Castellani, who had achieved fame in 1828 as a papal adviser to some finds of Etruscan jewelry, and who was now commissioned to restore the Campana collection and make plaster casts of the pieces. This close study of ancient goldsmithing techniques allowed them to emulate these in their own designs for jewelry, either in the form of pastiches or modern creations. Castellani is one of the most important of the revival jewelers of the 19th century. One of my absolute favorite works in the Ideal Jewels exhibition is the quatrefoil brooch made by Fortunato Pio Castellani in Rome around 1860. Fortunato founded a dynasty of jewelers that included Alessandro, Augusto, and Alfredo Castellani. He is renowned for his introduction of archaeological revivals, which became all the rage throughout Europe by the mid-century. This brooch was featured in the 1862 International Exhibition in London. It is reproduced in a chromolithograph entitled Jewelry in Gold by Castellani of Rome in a contemporary catalog of the exhibition. The quatrefoil, meaning a four-lobed shape, the quatrefoil's composition is dominated by a cross containing lozenge-shaped cabochon emeralds. The circular ends of the cross and center each have a collet-set ruby cabochon, surrounded by beading and decorative twisted wires. Geometric shapes, cabochon gemstones, enamel, and decorative details from the late Roman Empire and Byzantium, with a few later medieval-inspired flourishes. It is strikingly reminiscent of drawings by Michelangelo Catani. Catani was a talented polymath. Dante scholar, historian, aesthete, and artisan, who from 1828 maintained a lifelong friendship and collaboration with Castellani. Other stylistic influences evident in the brooch include early medieval jewelry for the pearls, on studs, and archaeological jewels as found in the collection of the Marquise Campagna for the ornamental twisted wires and beading. This piece adheres closely to ancient techniques that it imitates, revealing Fortunato Castellani's close study of the original archaeological objects. In this amazing quatrefoil brooch, we see a desire for time travel and transportation to the reality of the past through the carefully executed and detailed techniques that blend imperial power with early Christian symbolism. As a medievalist myself, it was nearly impossibly difficult to choose a favorite Gothic revival piece. But I've settled on discussing one instead that I selected for its romantic, legendary content and for its contrast with the Castellani brooch. that is, the Ring of Joan of Arc, made in Paris around 1890 by Louis Visse. Made entirely of cast and chaste openwork gold. This fluid, graceful piece features a quatrefoil element just as our brooch did. However, this quatrefoil is integrated into the piece, framing the central sculpted female head in three-quarter profile that forms the portrait of Joan of Arc, just like the composition of those used for the zodiac at the Cathedral of Notre Dame d'Amiens. This ring deliberately mimics the sculpture of a Gothic cathedral. Pierced trefoils reproduce the tracery of Notre-Dame de Paris, and sculpturesque crockets define the outer edge of the frame, and finials mark the top and bottom of the quatrefoil. Contrasting with Castellani's delicate technical observations, this ring is more fanciful and imaginative. Although Castellani was less interested in nationalistic symbolism and more in archaeological specimens, the Visa Ring of Joan of Arc projects a strong romantic nationalism. Joan was the symbol of French nationalism in the 19th century, appropriated by conservative Catholic circles in the 1890s. Joan of Arc, who lived only from 1412 to 1431, led the country to victory during the Hundred Years' War against England, and was ultimately tried for heresy and burnt at the stake. Visa's portrait can be compared with the life-size statue of her made in 1837 by Princess Marie Orleans, the sculptor and daughter of King Louis-Philippe of France. Princess Marie's statue won many accolades and was replicated in numerous casts earlier in the century. However, Visa's tough, outward-gazing Jones imagery is more in line with the gilded equestrian statue sculpted by Emmanuel Fremier in 1874 and prominently displayed in Paris. In armor, a triumphant Joan rides forth, bearing the standard of France. Here, Visa betrays the rampant desire in France to connect the nation with legendary roots and to elevate historical narratives of heroic peasants in a time of class upheaval. That desire continues to this day, with Joan of Arc performing both as an icon of nationalism for the French far-right party, that is, the National Front through Marine Le Pen, and also as a queer icon for her perceived cross-dressing and gender fluidity for the LGBTQIA community. The Renaissance Revival movement was intimately connected to the pre-Raphaelite painters, the name Pre-Raphaelite referred to the painter's opposition to the Royal Academy's promotion of the Renaissance master Raphael. They were inspired by the theories of John Ruskin, who argued that the principal role of the artist is, quote, truth to nature. They initially dealt with religious themes, but they later expanded into subjects from literature and poetry, particularly those dealing with love and death. So the final piece I will discuss with you today is practically a pre-Raphaelite miniature painting in enamel itself. A heart-shaped pendant with a cherub made in London around 1880 by Carlo Giuliano. This is a gold pendant with enamel depicting a floating winged cherub's head in frontal view against a translucent red background. Curling golden hair rests against pale blue feathery wings with gilt highlights. The frame has two borders, a thin line of white and black dots and a meander-like frieze in white on dark blue. There are 13 protruding seed pearls on studs that adorn the rim, giving this jewel-like enamel a tiara-like quality. The pendant loop in white and black dots is suspended from a white fleur-de-lis with foliate ornament in blue. Of all the revivalist jewelers, the versatile Carlo Giuliano may be the most difficult to recognize without recourse to his maker's mark. Self-described as an art jeweler, Giuliano probably began his training with Castellani in Rome, which inspired his interest in archaeological-style jewels. However, he rapidly developed as an independent artist, employing gemstones in unusual ways, incorporating enamel, using silver and gold, and he was evidently receptive to many, many different styles, from Gothic to Renaissance and even Mughal. As Beatrice Shador Sampson has stated, the Pre Raphaelites frequented Giuliano, and their sitters sometimes even wore his jewels. They even occasionally supplied designs to Giuliano as inspiration for the artist-jeweler. The vivid color, lush imagery, and sensuous allure of the pre-Raphaelites is conveyed in this glittering tiny jewel. Similar cherubs appear in stained glass by Sir Edward Burne Jones, and in a drawing by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. These jewels were often highly personal mementos, With its glass lid on the reverse, meant to hold a keepsake, the present heart-shaped pendant was perhaps intended as a gift for a member of the pre-Raphaelite circle. In these three examples, we have seen many different styles and ways of working. You might have noticed that jewelers sometimes worked from archaeological finds, a method especially evident in Castellani jewelry. Sometimes they worked from architecture and other inspirations, as we see clearly in the Joan of Arc ring, and occasionally they worked from designs made for them by other artists, as was the case with Carlo Giuliano and the pre-Raphaelites. The question of reproduction from real ancient jewelry, or invention from other forms or from reproductions or drawings, is of course an interesting one that speaks to the motivations of the artist and patrons. This is where I'll return now to some of the ideas that Carolyn Dinshaw puts forth in her book How Soon Is Now, the title which riffs off of the eponymous song by The Smiths. With its disconcerting, asynchronous beat and a longing and desire and asynchrony of the lead singer's insistent invocation of now that's never the same now as his invisible friends who attempt to confront him through the song. I won't dive into an analysis of the music or the entire book with you here, but there are a few relevant and striking visuals and concepts that Dinshaw evokes that are worth exploring in relation to the motivations behind the creation of revival jewelry in the 19th century. There are two basic types of time. Measured linear time, or what I like to think of as timeline time and experiential time, or lived time, that is, sensory time. Based on Dinshaw's writing, I'm going to break our historical relationship with these two types of time down into Aristotle's interpretation of time and St. Augustine's. Aristotle has a double treatment of time in his book Physics, a text based on the compilation of lectures given to his students concerning the observable world of nature. Aristotle's discussion of time at once treats it as a measurement of change, a succession of numbers counting, for example, T1, T2, T3, T4, etc. But then he also suggests that, quote, our everyday experience of time is not linear at all end quote. This analysis of time by Aristotle, quote, smuggles in everyday experience without drawing attention to it, constructs an image of time from it, and then explains our everyday experience with the image of time instead of the other way around, convincing us that experience is false and measurement is true, according to Dinshaw. Aristotle's thought has permeated so many different cultures across many time periods that most people's understanding of time has come to be influenced by him. Especially following the Age of Enlightenment, Observation, and Empiricism, we have come to think of time as merely a timeline and not as a thing we experience or a thing with a slippery and pliable existence. We can see the influence of Aristotelian thought on time unfolding in these jewels that rely most on direct observation and nature, such as the Castellani quatrefoil. Aristotle was interested in the observable world of nature as defined by change or motion, rather than any eternal, invisible world of forms. This was in contrast to Plato's ultimate concern. Thus, St. Augustine's thoughts on time diverge from Aristotle crucially because they look back and revive, in part, another ancient thinker, Plato. Plato's thought was taken up by the Neoplatonists, who informed St. Augustine's profound concern for the world of spirit. According to Dinshaw, for Aristotle, the universe was infinite. For Augustine, time is created and bounded by the infinite, the eternal, by God himself. Humans were, in St. Augustine's opinion, cursed by and with time, thrown out of the forever untime, the eternal. Desire to avoid time and live in eternal non-time or sacred heavenly time is a very Augustinian desire. Crucially, this time understanding still requires longing and desire for the things just out of temporal reach, but the gap here has widened beyond the world of real form to the world of sacred, ideal, atemporal form. That Augustinian longing can be seen very clearly in the Joan of Arc ring. In this piece, Visa crafted an image of a legendary ideal, a real historical figure elevated to allegory by the impetus of French nationalistic desire. These ideal jewels oscillate between the imaginary and the real, between direct experience and social memory. This playful oscillation reveals a deep desire to connect to history, but it also reveals that desire, history, and time are all interlinked. I will leave you now with a final image and a final thought. Often, often one skips the preface to a book, but I found some of the most striking imagery in the preface to How Soon Is Now, wherein Carolyn Dinshaw included photographs and an extensive meditation on one standout individual she is lovingly termed the, quote, bathrobe guy. She saw this young man at the medieval festival in 2009, that is, the enormous annual festival held at the Met Cloisters. He was dressed in a midnight blue bathrobe, walking along, playing a recorder, and taking notes. In this outfit, he simultaneously drew together the past, with his medieval-style robe, the present, because this was made from whatever was in his closet that day, presumably, and the future, which is, he had the goal of attending the festival in the park when he put this costume on. Dinshaw writes that she, quote, felt a vibrant resonance between this amateur medievalism and professional medievalism, and the location of the festival, that is, at the Met Cloisters, contributed to this sense, end quote. This interpenetration of festival attendees within a high culture museum, quote, embodied a linked relationship between amateurs and professionals. The two are hard to separate entirely, and that is, of course, a big part of the point, end quote. The Cloisters is a center of scholarly study, but the museum building itself is an eclectic creation incorporating medieval cloisters, medieval chapter houses, and other architectural elements from the Middle Ages into an early 20th century structure. This architectural return to the past represents a high culture version of the temporally unsettled man wearing this dressing gown. So, to conclude. History is unsettling, exciting, desirable, and right at our fingertips. The closer we are, whether we are an amateur or an expert, that longing and desire never goes away. Objects of an idealized, meaningful past, like those in the Ideal Jewels exhibition, teach us so much about ourselves in the present. As St. Augustine said, there are three times, the present of past things or our memory, the present of present things, or our direct perception, and the present of future things that are our expectations and desires for what is to come. These ideal jewels collapse our understanding of measurable time into the poetic present time described by St. Augustine. So that's all for today's episode on revivalism and time. Although the winter show has moved to the spring, our other exhibitions are opening. February 23rd, an exhibition on medieval women will open in the Chicago Gallery and online. And you can now view our special Valentine's Day offerings online through our exhibition, Tokens of Affection. And in keeping with the theme of revivalism, desire, longing, and time travel, we're having a Groundhog Day sale that will present a do-over day. So if you missed our spring and fall text manuscript updates, this is your chance for a do-over with a new special discount through February 18th. You can view the exhibitions and videos on our website. So please stay tuned for more information about upcoming fairs, exhibitions, and catalogues. In other news, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, the Listen in podcast is moving to a bi-weekly schedule, so you'll hear from us next on February 17th. After that, you can continue to expect new episodes every two weeks on special topics related to our fields of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and even to share this podcast with a friend. We would also really love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about the history of history, revivalism, medieval fairs, or revivalist jewelry that can help us expand our own understanding? Or if you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share about the podcast, you can let us know. Find out more about the works we discussed on our website, and you can also reach out with your comments and questions through our social media at Les Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.